closing talk on this retreat, I'd like to begin with a story that many of you know. However, with this beginner's mind you have so consciously nurtured, it will, of course, be new for you once more. It is a story about a sadhu, a holy man who lives in Rishikesh in India. And many people in India come to spend time around him, uh, to be in his presence. And his practice is very simple. He lives in a very a small hut beside a river. And every morning he gets up, he gets out of bed early, and he goes and stands beside the waterfall near his hut. And he simply stands there all day looking at the waterfall. Whereas most of the people who come to visit him stand around all day looking at him, looking at the waterfall. (laughs) He doesn't speak. He just stands and looks at the waterfall all day. And when the sun sets, he folds his hands before the waterfall and he says, well done. And he goes to bed and the next day does exactly the same thing, day after day. Uh, in, in many ways, I, I think I, I, I feel to say the same to you, well done. There is something about just being able to be present with simplicity, to have that, that courage and that equanimity and that steadiness to stay present in the midst of so many things and to learn to discover that whole art of connectedness, of appreciation, of sensitivity, of clear seeing within ourselves. We don't need a lot of things to awaken us in our lives. We don't need esoteric rituals. We don't need intensity, but this simple commitment to seeing to seeing well, and to know how much out of that commitment to seeing well there really does emerge. This greater sense of wisdom, this greater capacity for wakefulness in our lives. I know many of you over the days here have sat with many challenging moments, difficult moments, and have sat with them, stayed with them, walked with them, befriended them, And there is something very remarkable that happens in that process. There is that, certainly, that that greater sense of wisdom, of knowing what it means to be present without being conditioned by everything that comes our way. But there is also this quality of confidence, of trust in ourselves. And this is a remarkably significant quality to nurture in our lives to trust in our own possibilities, to trust in our capacity to begin again, to trust actually in the wisdom that is already with us. There are very few insights on a retreat that, is, that are new information. We know them. We know them. In our hearts we know them. What happens more in a retreat is the confidence the confidence of trusting in our wisdom. 
rather than to the whole variety of inner voices that moves through our consciousness and feeding, saying, do this, get rid of that, produce this, perform this, appear this way, to learn how to let go, to find spaciousness amongst, amongst all those pulls. We come into this environment, which is so very, very different from the rest of our lives in many ways. Somebody mentioned yesterday that their boss does check in with them about whether they're sitting. That is not the good fortune of most people in the world. <laughs> that their employers and their colleagues, you know, are caring for their practice in that way. And yet, even though this environment is so very different than the rest of our lives, having silence, having the support of community, having the discipline of a schedule, having input and encouragement, still really none of that makes actually, it's not primary transforming power. What actually allows us to open in a retreat, to see more clearly, to deepen, rests pretty primarily upon your own willingness to see that you bring here. There's nothing magical about the rest of it. You know, IMS is not kind of magically charged with awakening vibrations. It is this willingness that you bring here and nurture here and return to again and again. This willingness to be awake, this willingness to see, this willingness to understand. This is key. It's crucial. It's the primary element in understanding and in wisdom. I think we know this from our experience. We know that there's many ways of sitting on a cushion. Well, no, you know, you can, you can sit in the meditation room hour after hour looking like the most excellent yogi, you know, and in your mind, you know, there, there can be just planning shopping lists, you know, future adventures, mathematical equations, you know, anything can goes on. We do not, we are not kind of cosmic spies up here, you know, sitting, you know, investigating and probing the corners of your consciousness as you sit. Obviously, we would choose not to do that. This would not be, be a fun thing to do. But you, you make that choice. You make that choice about what happens when you sit down. You know you made that choice all the time in sittings and in walkings. We're making those choices. What are we going to attend here? What kind of choice do we make? If I could say that this is what we need confidence in, our capacity to listen to our own wisdom and to be guided by it. Our capacity to listen to our own wisdom and to be guided by it and to make those choices in our lives which lend themselves to a greater sense of well-being inwardly, a greater sense of well-being in our world. What our practice does is it kind of clears the driftwood so that we are able to make those choices more clearly, more simply. I refer to it as the kindergarten of wisdom of knowing what does contribute to well-being, to sensitivity, to understanding, to compassion, knowing what undermines well-being, wisdom, and compassion, inwardly and outwardly. We need to spend a long time in kindergarten. 
learning that well in our lives. It's not hard to learn because we live always with the effects of our choices. And if there is unhappiness and struggle and confusion, we need to return to that kindergarten. What have we not learned? In what way is struggle being perpetuated in our lives? What are we not seeing? And what are we not living in accord with? And this perhaps is, is of great significance. You know, wisdom is not hard. Wisdom is easy. Wisdom's the easiest part. We all don't know, actually, about from our stories, from our life experience, what causes sorrow and what brings freedom. What is hard is the willingness, that absolute willingness and commitment to live in accord with wisdom. Because otherwise, insight's not liberating. Insight is never liberating unless it has given life in our lives through living in accord with it, through honoring it, through embodying it. Otherwise, insight actually can become really a bit of a burden. You know, because it's actually, once you start to wake up in meditation in our lives, it's actually not that easy to go back to sleep. You know, and you find yourself going out in your life, and again, we're confronted with many choices, many options, many possibilities, many ways to use our time and energy. It's not so easy to be mindless. You know, even as we find ourselves engaging in reactions, in struggle, in, in grasping, in clinging, in pursuing, there is something within us that says, uh-oh, you know, I've been here before. I know this one. I know it, I know it, I know it. How to bring that insight to life, to breathe life into it. You know, and life is breathed into insight, really in a way through clarifying what we honor, what we are committed to in our lives. As we clarify what we honor and are committed to, actually we find that insight and the embodiment of it begins to come much closer together. You know, and we find also that, you know, to live not in accord with what we understand to be true actually makes our lives very hard work. You know, because then we find almost that awareness seems to take on this kind of censoring role. You know, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be doing this, or I wish I hadn't done this, or regret, or or, you know, resolution, this kind of artificial role. But, you know, when we are living with that kind of voice in, the, in our heads, it is basically telling us something about a gap that exists between wisdom and the embodiment of it. We need to pay attention to that gap. We need to see that insight without application is just a good thought or a good memory. Now, it seems hard work to be mindful in our lives. It seems hard work at times to live in that spirit of our own understanding. But actually, I think we really need to appreciate it's much harder work to be mindless. You know, when we are not actually attentive and present and awake in our lives, 
we see the whole power of accumulation, accumulation of unfinished business and all the regret that comes with that, the remorse, the guilt. We, we see the confusion that comes when we are not clear about what we honor. It's actually really hard work, you know, to live in an unawake way. And I think this is what we need to appreciate very much. Traveling this path is an integration. It means that we need to weave together both our inner lives and our outer lives so that we are free of the dichotomy that meditation is something that we do just on a cushion or on a retreat. We need to learn how to be weavers, how to bring the inner and the outer together. It means giving careful attention to the nature of our relationships, our speech, our livelihood, our actions, our way of being in the world, our sense of dedication to how we are in the world. We need to give careful attention to this. We wouldn't put a candle in a rainstorm and think, oh, it's just going to keep on burning. No, the outer nourishes the inner and the inner nourishes the outer. These two are inseparable companions in our lives. To live in a way that honors what we understand to be true is incredibly important. It requires more than just seeing, more than just clarity. It requires also compassion and courage. We speak about acceptance in meditation, about learning how to accept, learning how to be things with things as they are, learning how to enfold all things. And this acceptance is really a basis for transformation. It is not an acceptance of passivity or resignation or withdrawal. It means seeing beneath the world of appearances to the heart of ourselves, to the heart of another. But to live with that acceptance and that openness to receiving what is does not mean that all things in the world are acceptable. To say that not all things are acceptable is not an invitation to judgment or to denial or to rejection or, or to being a censor in the world or a controller. But it is to see that that which leads to sorrow and to suffering and to alienation it is not acceptable. Not that it is seeking for blame, not to put the word wrong upon it, but to see that anything that causes suffering needs to be clarified, understood, challenged, explored. It requires courage. It requires courage not only in this greater world that we live in, where suffering is, a, or, or the infliction or the imposition of suffering is sometimes taken so much for granted. It requires courage, too, in our own personal worlds to know, are we contributing in a conscious way to a world of peace, of understanding, of closeness? We are all conscious participants in the creation of each moment, the creation of our worlds. There is a nourishment and a vitality from being able to acknowledge that, acknowledge 
the need for care in our speech, our actions, our gestures, our relationships, because through all of these, ripples are made upon our world. It is not a question of setting up standards inwardly of right and wrong, but that careful, that devoted, that dedicated exploration in our lives, the quality of our inner world, the quality of our outer world. Is it bringing peace? Is it bringing understanding? Is it bringing compassion? Because through this we nourish not only our world, we nourish ourselves. That kind of, that kind of mindful living, it doesn't require grand gestures. It doesn't require dramatic lifestyles, dramatic renunciations. It requires a simple loving and caring and empty attentiveness what, how we are, and how we live makes a difference in our world. It is important in nourishing that sense of vitality that we look at how we nourish ourselves. Now, people who go out of a retreat who often find, you know, the most difficulty in... in keeping alive that sense of wakefulness are often people who don't feel so nourished in their lives. Um, And there is, I think, a real wisdom in consciously seeking that nourishment of our hearts, that nourishment of wakefulness, which can come through many ways, through taking care of our bodies, through being in nature, through appreciating that level of connectedness, through reading, through listening to tapes, through coming on retreats, to meeting with people, to having community in some way that that where we sense a shared sense of direction, a shared aspiration. Everyone needs this nourishment. It is like the compost for the plant, the water for the plants to grow. And it is very worthwhile seeking out to seek times of stillness in your life. You know, there isn't anything particularly holy about 45 minutes, but to seek times of stillness in transition times when you end one thing before you begin another. Are you able to take just a few minutes to be still, to stop, to have that sense of ending and beginning something else? When you end a contact with a person before you move into a new contact, are you able to take just a moment of just pausing, of being still. For, some, for many people to have that kind of discipline in their lives, of seeking conscious moments of stillness, times of stillness. In a way, you know, sometimes you, you sit in your lives and you know, you, you're so busy or you're recovering from your day or you're planning the day that's about to begin. And sometimes, you know, the thought arises, well, instead of thinking about it, why don't I just get up and do it? You know, but, and sometimes the feeling arises, well, this is kind of a waste of time. It's not a waste of time to take those moments of being still. Even if they are filled with busyness, consider what that busyness might, might be doing if we didn't pay attention to it. To take those times to be still is somehow, I think, a very living symbol, a living reminder to us to awaken once more to what we really honor, to what we really value, to what is really important in our lives, to learn to seek.
those moments of stillness. Enough. As I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of more and more to say, so we could just go on, you know? Um, Thoreau said, some men go fishing all their lives without realizing it's not the fish they're after. And I kind of think of retreats this way, that we come with some idea of getting something, of attaining something, and really, when we think about it, often what brings us back to the retreats is the process itself. It's a happy life. Someone once asked the Buddha, what is it that attracts people to meditation? And his answer was, it's a happy life. This is a happy life coming on retreat. You know, if you think of all the things that you could have been doing, say, for this last 10 days, well, we could have all visited a few malls. We could have uh, <laughs> seen a few movies. We could have gone to a few restaurants. We could have spent time with our friends. Not to say that these things are pleasurable, they're wonderful, but really the kind of happiness that we find when we come here, it's quite remarkable because it's a happiness that's not really dependent on the presence or absence of difficulty, but the happiness of being here, of being connected, of being present, of being awake. This is a very special kind of happiness. So remember how you got here. And remember that you can come back as well. And that this happiness is available to us all the time. It's not the property of retreats. It's not the property of IMS. It's available to us in our lives. One of the things I think which really is important to stay in touch with in our daily lives is that quality of intention. Knowing clearly what it is that we intend for ourselves, for our families, for our friends. And the loving-kindness meditation is a way to stay in touch with that. What is it that we value? What is it that we care about? What is it that we are trying to make manifest in our lives? Those qualities of mind and heart. What is our intention for this day? What is our intention for this week? Now, when you come on retreat, we kind of take care of the intention for you, in a way. There's not a lot of choices here, and we keep reminding you, you know, to come back, to be present, to wake up. This is a, an encouragement to remember your intention, to remember why you're here. And we're not going to be with you when you're sitting at home tonight. So you're going to need to remember in your hearts, in your minds, that quality of intention. What is my intention? And you can do it. You know it. It's just a matter of remembering. One of my favorite stories about uh, leaving retreat is uh, a woman in California left retreat one year and on the way home, she stopped at the grocery store, supermarket, and she was in there, she said, for a really long time. <laughs> a 
looking at everything, kind of walking up and down the aisles, feeling very peaceful, very, very at home, very wonderful. And then she finally realized that she was waiting for the bell. <laughs> So there are going to be no bells. <laughs> I said at the beginning of this retreat of, about this book, The Age of Missing Information, about the man who did the experiment, watching television, being in nature, and that this practice really gives us information that we may miss. Is that this practice is a way of communicating with ourselves and with life. And we may miss this information if we don't take the time to keep the channels open, so to speak. So this is a practice not so much of learning something new, but of realizing what we already know, of bringing it into focus. So to remember that as well, it is not about having to attain something, it is a remembering. So give yourself some time every day to remember. It is true that when you leave retreat, you may go through um, some swings in mood, some, some awareness of, you know, changes in pace, that you're going to have to be a little bit faster in your response to things than you've been here. And to understand that just as you went through a settling process when you came to retreat, that you're going to also need some time to adjust to the rhythm of the world again. And not to be thrown by that. Not to try to hold on to the silence. Not to try to hold on to the calm and the peace. They may not be appearing in the same way that you experience them here, and not to think that you've lost anything if that is the case. So to give yourself time to adjust, and I would definitely suggest staying in touch with the sitting when you get home, give yourself time in nature, stay in your body, I hope that this retreat has taught you something about the ongoing communication between the mind and the body, that they are really, we are living with our minds and bodies very interconnected, and that to take care of the body is to take care of the mind, to take care of the mind is to take care of the body, and to give some attention to both, especially in the weeks to come. I would also say that whatever insights you feel that you've had here or you haven't had, you may have some insights in the week or days or weeks ahead that often people find their, their biggest insights come after the retreat is over, as you re-enter your world. And you may feel more sensitive. You may feel 
sensitive in ways that feel uncomfortable even to you because this practice does open us. It makes us even more aware of some of the difficulties in the world, some of the suffering in the world. But this practice also gives us, and is so important to remember, it also gives us the tools for dealing with that sensitivity, for allowing that sensitivity, for knowing how to be with that sensitivity in a way that we're not blown away, we're not pushed around. There's a story by the teacher Thich Nhat Hanh about the boat people who were leaving Vietnam after the war. And many of these boat people were refugees from Vietnam, very uh, in, in great panic, leaving behind one life, setting out for a, an unknown life. And they would pile into these boats and often be... Uh, find themselves out at sea in rough storms or subject to pirates. And Thich Nhat Hanh said that what often made the difference between a whole boat full of people surviving or not surviving was the presence of one person in the boat who could remain calm. So we can all bring that into our world. It may seem not like such a dramatic thing, but it really has an impact. To be wakeful and to be calm in the midst of chaos is really to do a great service to our world. Just a few more things, and then I would like to um, have us all take refuge together before we leave here. Many people find that very meaningful at the end of the retreat, to take refuge. Um, just to say a few words about myself, I live in California. I would be happy to see any of you out there. I live in the Bay Area near Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is the, the sister center of this place. We have 400 acres of land near San Francisco. We are in the process of developing it as a meditation center. We hope to be able to offer retreats there sometime in the next two to three years. Right now, there are only some temporary buildings on the land, so we can't yet house people or feed people. We offer classes there, one-day sittings. You're very welcome to visit if you're ever out that way. So um, we're going to end with taking refuge and a metta meditation. So first, perhaps, we'll take refuge. Taking refuge is taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And when we think of taking refuge in the Buddha, we are not so much taking refuge in the historical person or the symbol that we see sitting here in front of us, but rather in our own potential for wakefulness and for compassion 
realizing our own inherent Buddha nature. So we are reminding of ourselves of that potential that lies within each of us, that we have this potential to awaken. It is also taking refuge in the understanding that within us there is a place of safety, there is a place of refuge, there is a place of freedom from suffering, and we can contact it, we can take refuge in it. We take refuge in the Dharma, in the truth of what is actually so, not what we want to be, not what we fear to be, but what is actually so, what is actually so. It is the reality which we can experience when we bring ourselves into the present. And it is this direct contact with the truth which can free us. We also take refuge in the Sangha or the community of good friends. It is very wonderful to have friends to share this practice with. And when we come together like this, we are building a temporary community of like-minded friends. We can receive support and nourishment from each other. And even when you go home and you may not have a formal Sangha, to remember our connectedness with all of life. All of life is our Sangha. So I will say the refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Before I begin the matter, <clears throat> as Anna said, we could go on and on here. <laughs> I would just, first of all, very much like to express my gratitude to the staff here, some of you who you have seen sitting during the retreat, some of you, you've seen them bringing food from the kitchens or in the office, but just that gratitude of being aware of how much the staff here and their service and their kindness creates a space for us all to come and leave from time after time during the year and who really so much are an essential part of supporting this, this environment and our capacity to be here. I also thank you for all of your, your presence and the sincerity and effort you have brought to these days here together. Um, my, my life, my year is spent basically teaching one retreat after another. 
in different places around the world, here in America, a number of times in Europe. And each retreat is, is very unique and very precious, and I'm very, very aware of how that whole nourishment of this teaching, the inspiration for this teaching really comes actually so much from the, the insight and the happiness that you all find within this environment. And also that we thank you also for the dana that you leave, because this is actually what allows us to continue teaching in any way at all. So I also thank you for that. So if we take just a few minutes to bring into our hearts once more that sense of warmth and friendliness, a quality of care and loving kindness. Just in your body be enfolded within your awareness in a soft and gentle way. Letting all of your thoughts and your feelings in this moment be enfolded within your awareness in a soft and gentle way. Not struggling anywhere with anything, but nurturing in this moment a sense of warmth and friendliness towards yourself. Appreciating the the courage and the sincerity of your presence here and through these days. Appreciating and honoring the willingness you have found to be present with the difficult, to embrace it, to find compassion for yourself. Honoring the spirit of your own intention, the way that you manifest that in your days here. Honoring the way in which you have, each of you supported everyone else here in this room. May that warmth and friendliness for yourself be with you in all of your moments, in all of your days. May I learn to welcome each person who comes into my world with friendliness, with warmth, with compassion. May I be free from sorrow. May I be free from fear. May I be free from ill will. May I be filled with happiness, with serenity, 
and sensitivity. May I live my life in that spirit of wisdom and compassion. And extending that same warmth and friendliness to each person in this room. Appreciating the support that has been offered through their presence, through their devotion. Appreciating the steadiness, their willingness to, to be with the same fears, the same pains, the same struggles that we have experienced. Appreciating the capacity of all of those around us for compassion, for understanding. May you be free from sorrow and from fear. May you be free from danger and from alienation. May your life be filled with happiness and with peace. May your hearts be filled with friendliness and with loving kindness. And extending that warmth and that friendliness to welcome, to bring into our hearts all of those beings in our world who at this moment are living with fear or terror of violence or of oppression, of hunger, of rejection. A compassion for all of those who are held within the grips of tensions, of wars, of struggles. May they find peace in their lives. May they find forgiveness in their hearts. May they be free from sorrow and from pain. May they be free from danger and from fear. And to welcome into our hearts, to bring into our hearts all of those who in our world in this moment suffer a kind of sorrow of the spirit, those who are lonely, who feel rejected, 
who feel powerless, who live within the coldness of prisons, of institutions. May they be free from sorrow, from fear. May they be free from harm. May their lives be touched with power of loving kindness, of friendliness. May they find warmth and care in their lives, in their hearts. May all of the creatures on our earth, in the skies, in the oceans, on the ground, beneath the ground, be free from harm, be free from danger. Live with ease, with safety. May all of the beings in our world be free from harm, be free from danger. Live with well-being, without fear. Appreciate it. May all beings be free from sorrow. May all beings be free from ill will. May all beings be free from hatred. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with forgiveness. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on August 1, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.